everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. Hey, good morning. It's always fun to pop out and see what to see in our barn, and each week, uh, different kind of groups of people here. So we want to welcome those of you who are here in the barn with us. We want to welcome you to Discovery. Those of you tuning in online in Colorado, uh, particularly for those of you that Discovery is your home church, when you're ready, we are looking forward to seeing you back. Uh, I know for many of you, you have discovered Discovery through this time. And so you're still checking out either our church or you're checking out the claims of Christ. And as you watch the announcements, we have really starting point is our best next step for you. And I would encourage you to take the step from just observing to signing up. Jump in on a starting point. We're not like Hotel California. It's easy in, easy out, but it really will give you the best opportunity to get to know who we are as a church. And I think also get to know what a church is all about which is every single person being needed and known and finding their place uh, as an essential part of the body of Christ. Of course, there's also many of you that are joining from all around the country, even some from around the world. And so you are part of our Discovery community as well. We, we love hearing from you. Just a quick update uh, on a couple of things. First of all, COVID. Okay, yeah, what a year. So basically, it has not been easy, and I know that's a massive understatement, but for us, it has been pretty simple. By which I mean, uh, as long as we were able, we followed the CDC guidelines and the state guidelines and our county guidelines, as long as we believed it was pleasing to the Lord, and the whole way through, we did. We thought what uh, our CDC and our government authorities were instructing us to do was a good thing to do. And so uh, what happened is late this week, uh, CDC and state and county basically significantly lifted guidelines. And so uh, here's the deal. If you uh, are unmasked, we welcome you. We trust that means you're vaccinated. We're not policing it. We're not asking you. If you are more comfortable in a mask, then we have socially distanced in the balcony and also on our wings are the more socially distanced uh, experiences. We also want you to know that many of us are still kicking around in a mask. So for example, if you want to come up and chat later and you're in a mask, I'm putting mine on. We have no interest in this being a thing. You know, like, like the unity of the body of Christ, that's what this is about. So those of you who are not wearing a mask, enjoy the freedom. Those of you who still prefer for probably a number of good reasons to wear a mask, we're, we're with you. My last comment will be, in the basement uh, for now, we're still all masked. And that's because it's a passion of ours to reach uh, a population that's immunocompromised. And many of our children still are not uh, vaccinated. So out of love for our immunocompromised sisters and brothers, and the adults that are caring for our kids, if you're in the basement, we are asking you to, to mask up. You can do it. Just a couple more weeks. It won't be much longer. You can do that. And so that's what's going on at the church. The other thing I want to let you know about COVID is we, we knew this last summer, but we're now seeing more and more of the impact of it. COVID did a giant churn on churches all across the world. And it also did a giant churn on discovery. So what that means is we had core families who had been with us for years who have left and they're now part of another church or no church at all. We have people who, in the wonderful words of the author of Hebrews, gave up the habit of gathering together. And I don't mean here in the barn. I just mean they tried a few Sundays on the couch and then they experienced the rest of their church experience in bed, basically. And they're just, they're, they've just gotten lost the habit 
of the power of gathering in collective worship. At the same time, Discovery, like many other churches, has received a large influx of people. So what that means is our core has shrunk. There are less of us who were around when COVID started than are now. We think about 25, 30% less, a good number less. But we actually are reaching almost the same or maybe even more, we're not quite sure yet, the amount of people before, primarily online. And just a little church science, this is nerdier than you really need. There's always quite a trail between somebody stepping their foot in a church, whether metaphorically or actually, and then their commitment following up, whether that's serving or giving money. So Discovery is down about 25% on our general budget. And so we are making some cuts. And we have been tracking this and we've been adjusting as we go. But it's primarily, we believe, is because some core people who used to be part of us just aren't here anymore. So many of you are very generous to Discovery. It's not that your generosity has shifted at all. It's that the number of generous people have reduced. Now, the fact is, uh, we are going to head into the summer really tight, and we're intentionally tightening our belt. For those who have been around forever, this was the update I gave every summer up until 2012. And then, by the grace of God, from 2012 to 2020, we just had incredible financial generosity where we were able to increase our budget, expand the scope of our ministry. It was incredible. And so we're back in the way it used to be, where we have a simple posture. We ask people who are able to practice generosity to do so. We trust God. We give thanks for what God provides. We live within our means. So that's our posture moving forward this summer. And another thing is obviously our unfinished initiative, which we'll be giving an update this summer on that. Our unfinished initiative has received quite a challenge through COVID. The city just shut down for like nine months or something. So we're still working on getting that building approved. We want you to know it is still in the plans. We don't know what the timing is now, but we are not looking to slow it down. We're just looking to be wise. But we have quite a cash reserve ready uh, to help with that. We, we have made the choice starting last April that we wouldn't take the cash reserves that were really designed for capital improvements and send them into our general budget, which is why we're cutting our general budget to fit our church. If you've got questions about that, be happy to talk to you. You could reach out to our staff or our elders. We'd be happy to chat with you about that. But I just wanted to catch you guys up on that because we're kind of heading into summer. Um, and I know Memorial Day kind of signals uh, oftentimes not seeing you for a while. So there that is. Okay, so as we dig into the message today, I just want to start by, by challenging everybody. That I, in my opinion, every human being, before they die, like every human being before you get around to dying, you have a decision to make. And I think it's actually the most important decision you can make with your life. And that decision is, um, which story are you going to tell with your life? Which story are you going to tell with your life? And, and I think what we're taught in Scripture is there's two fundamental stories. In the beginning, God. That's one of the stories. In the beginning, God. And the other story is, in the beginning, me. And these are very opposite stories. And every single human being has a decision to make. Which story am I going to give my life to? In the beginning, God. Or in the beginning, me. And of course, in this culture of great freedom and choice and prosperity, we say, well, I'd like a little bit of God and a little bit of me. That's in the beginning me, according to the scriptures. A spot of God, spot of me is me. And um, baptism, which is what we're talking about today, is the public declaration that you are changing the narrative of your life. 
You're moving from in the beginning me, it's all about me, I'm the center of my life, I get to decide, I'm the primary agent of my life. You're changing from that. And baptism is the, is the declaration where you say, now I'm dying to that, and in the beginning God. God is first, God is supreme, God is my king. And more specifically, when you get baptized, you're not just declaring that you're folding your story into God's story, you are also declaring that God has forgiven your sins. Everything you've done washed away. That the shame that you can tend to feel when you don't live up to your standard or God's standard, Jesus covers that shame. You also get the gift of eternal life. And uh, this, this baptism here, what we're talking about, it's a sacrament, which means it's a it's a physical expression of a spiritual thing that happens between us and God. Last week, we talked about the sacrament of communion, the bread and the cup. Today, we're talking about the sacrament of baptism. And, and I think everyone knows this, but just to be overt, there's nothing magical in the water. Nothing magical happens when you get in the water. It's not the act of baptism that does all this for you. It's the grace of God that does it for you. Baptism is just you publicly declaring it. It's kind of in some ways, like a wedding ceremony where you stand up in front of all these people and you say, I know you all wanted to get married to me, but she's the only one that gets to. It's not really at all what it is, but, but you stand up in a public setting and you say, I'm with this person the rest of my life till death do us part. That's really what baptism is. So, before I get into our text today, we have a baptistry. It is at room temperature, not bad. And you can get baptized today. So if you're in the room and you have never been baptized, you've never declared your allegiance to God in baptism, you can do that today. Also, if you've never actually become a follower of Christ, we can help you receive the grace of God today and get baptized. If you're watching in Colorado and you're within 20 miles of this church, let me get this fixed. Got an ear issue. There we go. That's way better. Sorry, Bill. I know that makes your life harder. If you're living within 20 miles of this church, you can get in your car right now, come on over. I will serve you by preaching long enough for you to get here, and we will happily baptize you by the end of the service. And, and I know I'm, I'm being facetious about the sermon length, but I'm being dead serious. If you have never been baptized and it's something you've wanted to get around to, baptism isn't something you finally get around to. It's something you plunge your life into. So if you're online and watching this in Colorado and you can get to this building in the next 45 minutes, come on, skip the sermon. It'll be online. You can catch it later. I guarantee you one more sermon isn't what you need. Jump in the car, come meet us after the service, we'll be here. We'd love to baptize you. If you're watching from another state or around the world and you would like to be baptized, uh, we, you can fly here if you want, but our preferred method is pop a note in the chat and our pastors and our, our team online will get your information and this week we are committed to helping you find a church where you live that will baptize you, okay? Or that will meet with you about baptism. So, we just want to eliminate excuses because we live in a country that likes to observe from a position of judgment rather than just obey and jump in. That's why I just gave my little rant there, my little fire and brimstone, my cheerful fire and brimstone message is what I call it. Uh, 
All right, so let's get in the Bible. And, you know, typically when you're teaching baptism, you're going to be in the New Testament, but there's this wonderful story in the Old Testament. It's not specifically technically a baptism, but it's close enough it'll count for today. So 2 Kings 5, verse 1, we'll be reading a good bit. Now, Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram, or Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now, bands from Aram had gone out and taken captive of a young girl of Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who's in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and he told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. I I did a little research this week to try to convert this to to modern currency, and I read one Bible scholar that said it's about $20,000 in today's dollars, and another one that said it's three-quarters of a million. So, I don't know, but it's a lot of money. He packed a lot of money. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, with this letter, I'm sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of leprosy. And as soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and he said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me? We'll just pause for a moment. Uh, Aram, or the Aramites, and Israel, the Israelites, are enemies that have what would be best described as an uneasy alliance or an uneasy peace. Uh, probably like U- USA and Russia, or even USA and Iran, for example. And so that's what you're seeing going on here, is the Lord actually helped Aram defeat Israel to try to get his people, the Israelites, their attention. That's why early on in the passage it says, the Lord used Naaman to defeat Israel. And then you'll see, that's the other evidence is, uh, the Aramites then kidnapped this young girl and made her a slave. So the uneasy alliance, enemies, That's why when the king of Aram writes to the king of Israel, it says, hey, I'm sending one of my precious soldiers. You're going to heal him. The king of Israel's response is, what fight are you trying to pick with me now? The king of Israel is basically saying, I can't heal this guy. This is an excuse for Aram to invade and do more trouble. Uneasy alliance. I I remember uh, one of my favorite TV shows, The West Wing, uh, late 90s, early 2000s, political drama, and a great episode where... Um, Iran sent a child to America for a high-risk surgery that only this surgeon could do to complicate the plot. The surgeon was Iranian who had escaped to America. So he's doing the surgery on an Iranian, and he's saying to the president, I'm not going to do it because if the boy dies, the Iranian leader will kill my family. Like uneasy alliance, that's what we're dealing with here. So, so the Israelite is, the Israel king is like they're trying to pick a fight, And then back in verse 8, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me and he will know that there's a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and he stopped 
at the door of Elisha's house. Horses and chariots, code for Naaman, was a really big deal, taking a lot of money, and he had an entourage. He's like a Kardashian, basically. When he goes somewhere, all these people go with him. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and he said, I I thought he would surely come out to see me because he's a big deal. I thought he would surely come out to see me and stand and call on the name of the Lord and wave his hands over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Like, wouldn't, like Naaman's offended because Elisha is on the couch and he's just finished episode of seven of Ted Lasso. And that little thing on the TV where the credits roll and you're like, do I have time for another one? And the TV decides for you and it starts loading the next one. That's what's going with Elisha and the doorbell rings. Elisha's doorbell rings, which nowadays means his freaking phone rings and his darn watch everything rings. And Elisha's like, I'm not even, I can't even be bothered getting up. Ted Lasso. So Elisha, like a doctor, writes a prescription. Can't read it. Gives it to his servant girl and she gets up. And that's why Naaman's tick. Naaman's like, I'm a five-star general. I've got my chariots and horses and your little prophet doesn't even have the respect to get up and greet me. And the servant girl's like, I think it says like sip seven times. No, no, dip, dip your, like she can't read it because like a doctor's hand. Like Elisha couldn't care less. And so he basically writes this note. Now what I love about this note, and I'll show you where this is, Elisha is trolling Naaman and trolling Naaman's belief system in this note. Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, your flesh will be restored and you'll be cleansed. He's trolling Naaman by saying, you're not a big deal. No one's a big deal when it comes to Yahweh. Yahweh is the big deal. You're nothing. Just like me. I'm not even going to get off the couch to greet you like you would anyone else. I don't care. You're a five-star general. By the way, go wash yourself seven times in, in which river? The Jordan. And you can see what Naaman says if you follow along here. Naaman went away angry. He says, I thought he would surely do all these things. And then in verse 12, Naaman saying to himself, are not the Abana and the Farpa, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters in Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman believed in and worshipped the Mesopotamian god Ea, uh, two letters E-A, just for the nerds in the room. Ea had a wife, this god, Ninhurzag. I don't know much about her, but Ea, uh, Ea was the god of healing and the god of cleansing. And Ea had a wife, and he was an unusual god in Mesopotamia belief system because most of the gods were petty and vindictive, and so you would sacrifice to them to keep him off your back, kind of like the IRS. Just do the minimum required to keep him off your back. Try to keep them distracted so they wouldn't be petty and vindictive toward you. There's a whole belief system in the ancient Near East that there's all these gods and they're all petty and vindictive, and you've got to sacrifice things to them to keep them happy. It's partly what makes the God of Yahweh so radical is a God of grace who is merciful and loving. Like there was no other God like that apart from Israel's God. So Naaman believes in the God of Ea. And if you have a sickness and you've tried everything, one of the things you could do is you could go to the cleanest water you could find. In this case, the waters of Damascus. 
And you would get in them and you'd stand upstream and you'd dip seven times. And then you would turn downstream and you would dip seven times. And then you would float a gift to the god of Ea downstream. And once it's out of sight, you believe that now the god of Ea had the gift. And because he was compassionate, maybe he would heal you. There's no question that Naaman's already tried that. That's like the fourth thing you try. And this is where things get really interesting. Muddy water, half the amount of times, no gift required. Naaman's like, it's not going to work. That's not how the world works. So Naaman is skeptical. Naaman's like, I'm not going to do it because I've already decided, I've already judged that this is a bad idea. Verse 13, Naaman's servant, remember this slave girl from Israel, Naaman's servant went to him and said, "My, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and he became clean like that of a young boy. And then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God and he stood before him and he said, now I know that there's no God in all the world except Israel. Please accept now a gift from your servant. And the prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. It's fascinating to me that Naaman and his culture actually have a couple of things in common with our culture. One of the things I've noticed, if you look at the Scripture and the history of people following God in the Scripture, there's an impulse in there. There's a there's a tendency, and if you look at Naaman, and if you look at our culture that we live in, there's a, also an impulse, there's a tendency. The impulse in Scripture is toward obedience. The impulse in our culture and in Naaman is toward judgment and skepticism. You notice that? We, just, we live in a culture where every single human being gets to be the arbiter of what's true and what's not. Like, we have made ourselves. That's why at the beginning, beginning I said... Is it in the beginning me or is it in the beginning God? Because we live in a culture that says you get to decide what's true. And so Naaman wouldn't do this simple thing because it didn't line up with his cultural belief. He's like, that's way too simple. This, I need to bribe the God. I need to do this ritual and the water isn't right. It's no way that's true. He couldn't simply do the silly thing is what one of the Bible scholars said. He just couldn't do the silly thing, which is jump in a dirty river seven times and be healed. And so many people... They don't follow Christ because they're so busy being skeptical of the claims of Christ and judging the claims of Christ that they don't try it. They, I, I guess what I've noticed is in this culture, they stop at that moment of skepticism. They, it's like they flick it away, right? Like just like, ah, that's not for me. That doesn't work. I, I, a few weeks ago, I was telling the story. I just told it briefly of Fred Epstein that at least in the 80s and 90s, was the finest pediatric brain surgeon in the world. I remember in my 20s, I was in the 1990s, I remember reading a story, I was so moved by it. I was reading in the Reader's Digest. They, they interviewed Dr. Epstein, they interviewed his wife and his kids, they interviewed the patients that he had healed. And uh, he had, I don't remember right now, it's been a long time since I read it, but he had like an 80 or 90% success rate. It was off the charts and he only took the highest risk brain tumor cancer uh, patients, these kids. And in the article, they said he doesn't charge because no one could ever afford him. 
So he has a patron who underwrites all his costs. So basically what it is is if you can get to him from anywhere in the world and he has time in his schedule, he will work on you. And his patron takes care of his surgery, the hospital costs, your family staying at the hotel, the whole deal. The whole nut is covered. And he's the only body, only one that can do these certain surgeries. And I've just often pictured like in, in modern culture nowadays and your child is sick and, and you're desperate and you've tried everything and, and finally there's someone that can do something and you go and Dr. Epstein says, I can do this, I can heal your child and it's no charge. And you say, well, I'd like a second opinion. I don't really like the way you hold the scalpel. And You know, when, when, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life, no one comes through the Father but through me. In this culture, we flick it away. We say, that's so arrogant, so exclusive. We miss the idea that there was no way, there was no way to connect to God, and Jesus made a way. One, he actually made a way. And in this culture, I just want to ask, maybe, maybe you're watching this right now, maybe you're in this room, maybe you're online, you know, maybe your general posture to the claims of Christ is kind of one of these, you know, I, I, I know. I'm related to, I have deep love for people who are like that. A lot of my family are like that. I know what that's like. I just want to say, you're skeptical and you feel so good about that. Who's skeptical of your skepticism? Like, you're judgmental about it. Are you judging your judgmentalism? You flick it away. Like, who flicks the flick, right? Like, the problem in our culture is we do one move of deconstruction and we say we've arrived. But I, I'm telling you, and I'm telling you from personal experience, uh, the next move beyond that, there's life and freedom and peace. It's unbelievable. Uh, so the impulse in the Scripture toward obedience, the impulse toward judgment in our culture. The second impulse, and I, I love this about Naaman, is if you look at the whole testimony of people who follow God in the Bible, in the Scripture it's the impulse toward action, and in our culture it's the impulse toward observation. I can't get baptized today. I don't have a change of clothes. Let me tell you something. We are fine with wet carpet. We're fine with it. I don't mean to be radical, but we're fine with it. And we don't care that your upholstery in your car is going to be wet. We just don't care. It's not something you get around to. I, I grew up swimming in the Indian Ocean, and then once in a while on vacation, um, I'd swim in what's a newly named ocean in Australia called the Southern Ocean. Uh, the Southern Ocean, just to give you a point of view, if you swim in the Southern Ocean and you head south, you hit Antarctica. It's really chilly water. Um, so that's the water I grew up swimming in, and it's really cold, and it never really gets warm, even in the summer. And so uh, th there's two primary ways to get in the water. The first way is the way that leads to death. You start with your toe, and you just kind of ease in. And I'm not going to get explicit, but by the time you get to your middle thigh, you have a decision to make. The better way is 50 yards back, run as fast as you can, and the momentum just gets you, and you're f just refreshing, brisk, cold, and you're in. That's baptism. That's baptism. Is It's just an impulse toward action. And it's fascinating what we see here with Naaman is how quickly he then got in. And there's some things in this story that are implied because of the ancient culture that we don't think much about. But most of the people in the New Testament and certainly in the early church, when they got baptized, they got baptized fully naked. I know this is uncomfortable for us to think about. We have very good reasons to keep you clothed. But in the early church particularly, and some people say in the book of Acts, women baptize women, men baptize men. 
They got fully naked to symbolize, I bring nothing into this agreement, just myself. And so as you look at Naaman, he leaves his wealth behind. He leaves his chevrons behind. He takes his purple heart behind. His entourage don't get in the water with him, just him. God strips him of everything. And that's the beauty of baptism. It's the reminder that God is the one carrying all the weight in the relationship. You submit, you obey, God does the rest. The other thing I'll just say is the reason we... Uh, baptized publicly is you cannot baptize yourself. All through the Scripture, baptism is something done to you, not something you are able to do for yourself. And it doesn't mean you have to do it in front of all these people. You might come up later and there's just six or seven people. That's fine. But it is a public declaration where you submit to it being done for you. Just unrelated to baptism, but I think a couple of these relate I'm going to encourage you to read the rest of the story on your own. I'm just going to give you a couple of pieces of it. And then go home and read the rest of the story. There's two absolute gems in this passage. Here's the next one. Naaman gets baptized. He's healed. He puts on his military outfit, his five stars, his regalia. He goes back to Elisha's house. He's like, that was unbelievable. Thank you so much. How much do I owe you? I'm in the habit of paying for my spiritual transactions. And Elisha's like, it's no charge. I wouldn't think of it. couldn't dream of it. The next thing, this is in your Bible. Next thing, true story. Naaman takes a shovel and starts digging up Elisha's garden and just piling it onto one of his chariots. Now, I'm embellishing a little bit. Like Elisha's there like, look, I would have preferred my rose garden stay intact. What in the world are you doing? But Naaman's almost furiously digging up Elisha's garden. He's taking Elisha's dirt and he's putting it on his chariot and Elisha's like, can you explain yourself right now? And Naaman's like, oh, oh, yeah, uh, what I'm going to do is I'm only ever now worshiping your God. I'm done with my gods. I'm worshiping your God. And so what I'd like to do is take some dirt from Israel, because this is God's place, because they all believe that gods were regional back then. So I'm going to take God's dirt, and I'm taking it to my house. And I'm going to put God's dirt on top of the other dirt, and I'm going to build an altar to your God so I can worship your God. Isn't that the most amazing thing? After he was baptized, and I know I'm being metaphorical, but I love this. He, he does some kind of act of worship. And then my even more favorite thing, there's two more to go and then we're done. He says, hey, Elisha, I'm in a pickle. Can you help me out? I'm going back to the Aramites. I'm an Aramite. These are my people. I love these people. I serve these people. Okay, so I'm a Yahwist. I'm now worshiping Yahweh, but they're worshiping their gods. In fact, my boss, the king, he worships Rimon. And um, there's a temple to Rimon. Elisha's like, I, I know all this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my, my boss, the king, has bad knees. This is in your Bible. I'm not making this up. My boss, the king, has bad knees. And I'm his assistant when he needs to go worship Rimon. So like... When he wants to go worship and he's bending his knee, Elisha, I just want to see if, if this is okay. I'm giving him my arm and so the king is bending his knee and I'm helping him down because of his bad knees. So I'm, oh, I can't even say it out loud, Elisha, but I'm stooping as a Yahwist to Rimon. But my heart, Elisha, my heart is worshiping Yahweh. Is that okay? Unbelievable. Like I find this, I can tell by the looks on your face, some of you are like, so what? I think this is unbelievable that he's basically saying 
the church is not a refuge where Christians only hang out with Christians. The church is an outpost of the kingdom where you find yourselves in some pretty morally sticky situations, in some pretty tricky uh, situations trying to figure out, how do I properly represent and worship God in this place? And so here's, Naaman's already figured this out. He's like, I'm going to be the only Yahwist in the Aramites, but I got to, he's changed my life. So as I'm stooping down to Rimon, I just want you to know, can I have a, please, a special dispensation? And Elisha says, yeah, go in peace, man. No problem, that's fine. And I love that once you're baptized, you're right back where you were, with that embarrassing family member, with that difficult work situation. I, I remember, I'll never forget one of the Discovery members named Tim. We were chatting about church, you know, Sunday versus Monday. And he's like, Monday is I put my armor on and I got to go fight because the values of the business I, industry I work in are so polar opposite of the values of the kingdom of God. And I'm constantly feeling torn. What do I do? How do I be successful in my business while being an honest person? And I love that that's in the Bible. And then the third one, and we're way off baptism now, but hey, I'm trusting that some people are driving, so I'm going to throw this one in. Elisha has a little helper, a little servant named Gehazi, and he's just 100% rascal. Gehazi is just problematic. So Naaman takes Elisha's dirt and starts his trek back to Aram, and Gehazi and Naaman, you know, they're watching Tad Lesso, and Gehazi's like, oh, I, I left something in the car. And Gehazi leaves, and he chases down Naaman. And he says, hey, Naaman, uh, Elisha made a big mistake. He told you it wasn't cost, but it actually cost a lot of money. Naaman's like, oh, yeah, that's great. Here's all my money, and gives it to Gehazi. Gehazi extorts Naaman out of the money. And then by the time Gehazi gets back to Elisha, Elisha already knows about it. It's always troubling when you're around someone that hears from the Lord. And so Elisha says, okay, if you're going to take the money, now you have the leprosy. And then name, uh, Gehazi gets leprosy. You've got to be careful with these Old Testament prophets. This is why we're more of a New Testament church ourselves, I think. You know, they get vindictive. Like, they just get angry and impetuous and reactive. And now Gehazi has um, leprosy. So, yes, that is how we're finishing a baptism sermon. Um, I'm going to invite the band to come out, truly. And uh, what I'm going to invite you to do, those who are in the room, if you're able, go ahead and stand. And I'd just like to focus us back on what God is calling us to do and what baptism is. There's a wonderful quote by Bishop Will Willimon. So it'll be on the screen. We're going to read this, and then we're actually going to go straight into worship. So we'll just read this, and then we'll sing. Uh, Bishop Willimon, here's what he says. In baptism, we are initiated, crowned, chosen, Embraced, washed, adopted, gifted, reborn, killed, and thereby sent forth and redeemed. We're identified as one of God's own and then assigned our place and our job within the kingdom of God. Let's sing to that God now. <laughs> 